Fine Music Radio. People of Note on Fine Music Radio is proudly brought to you each week at this time by Peter Turin Productions. This is Fine Music Radio and Rodney Trudgeon inviting you to this week's edition of People of Note. A curious subject we have. My guest is Luby Rush, who has several decades of experience as a landscape designer, always encouraging her clients to plant indigenous landscapes suited to their environment. And in the past few years, she's included exploring indigenous foods and encourages South Africans to get to know, grow and use indigenous food plants in a contemporary way, both in the garden and in the kitchen. And because there are virtually no indigenous ingredients available to buy, Luby is actively pursuing ways to achieve more widespread growing of indigenous food plants so that the unsustainable practice of foraging will in time no longer be a prerequisite to using indigenous ingredients. So Luby, welcome. Thank you. My very first question is, what is an indigenous food. What is indigenous food? Right. So the word indigenous stands distinct from endemic. Endemic means that it's particular to a very sort of limited spot. Yeah, a specific area. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Whereas indigenous is a word that you would need to qualify a bit. So you would say indigenous to a particular region or indigenous to a country. And in the, in the way in which I use it, I'm predominantly working with food plants that are indigenous to the Cape or to the Cape touristic region. And now my next question is, what is a food plant? I mean, most vegetables are plants anyway, yes, but yes. You're, you're talking about something different here. Yeah, so I was making the distinction between a, a plant versus an animal. So it's yeah. not oh, game, okay. which is you know fairly readily available, mm-hmm. as opposed to plant foods, which certainly the Cape ones are just not available to us at all anymore. We've completely forgotten them. Um, and even though they were eaten, Eaten. <laughs> eaten for millennia by people who lived here prior to the colonists arriving. At the moment, they just absolutely don't exist in our food system at all. Oh, so you can't. So where are you going to get the product from, or where do you get the product from? Well, this is part of what, I, what I'm doing. This is why I'm encouraging people to get to know them mm-hmm. and then to grow them because they're not in cultivation, they're not in our agricultural system, and then to cook with to cook with them. So it's really, you know, if you were to ask me to list a whole bunch, I'd kind of be wasting my time because you wouldn't know what the hell I was talking about. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, give me just an example, not a whole okay. bunch. Okay. So an indigenous plant you might know is a bar. Oh, yes, of course. So that is one of our Cape winter rainfall indigenous foods. Mm -hmm. Then there are the whole string of others. And depending on if maybe you're still living quite remotely, you might still have access to felt quill. And then one of the things that has become a bit better known now around Cape Town is dune spinach, which some farmers actually have begun to cultivate. And then rooibos tea, so honeybush tea. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Rooibos tea yes. and honeybush, that's in the field of what you're working on. Well, those are the ones, those are some of the ones which actually are becoming a little bit accessible. And Vartoblomikis as well have been, yeah. they are people who are have them in dams and that kind of thing. We but the all ones, know Vartoblomiki Brady. Yes, indeed, <laughs> indeed, yes. And Feltquil Brady is just as delicious. Okay. And then there are a whole lot of other ones where 
we might know them because we're gardeners. And so one of the things that I discovered really when I was working as a landscape designer was that the distinction between winter rainfall South Africa and summer rainfall South Africa wasn't really made. So you would go to the nursery, to the indigenous section, and you might be living in Cape Town where the rainfalls in winter. And in the indigenous section, there's a whole bunch of summer rainfall plants. So you might think you're beginning to plant a water-wise garden, but it actually they're not necessarily drawing attention to the fact that an agapanthus actually most of them come from summer rainfall areas Mm -hmm. or even a wild garlic. So there's that distinction as well, which for me became very important because if we are going to be using our plants to be resilient, for example, in a climate variable world, then we really need to be making use of plants that are resilient and are adapted to the place where you are. So if you're living in Cape Town and you want to start planting indigenous foods from Cape Town, then the chances are you're going to be growing something which is adapted to here. Whereas if you bring something from a summer rainfall region down, chances are you're going to have to irrigate it. Mm. And so, yeah, that's a subtle distinction which many people aren't familiar with. Okay, now I I need to take a few steps back. Mm. What caused you to go this route? I mean, you're not suggesting we don't eat beans and peas and cabbages sure. and cauliflower, sure. but you are suggesting we examine the indigenous foods yes. that we may have access to. So it's a very layered reason. I thought so. That's <laughs> how did you to explain to me. Yes. So I first really was introduced the idea that our landscapes are edible when my mother married an archaeologist when I was about 11 years old. And so through going into the field with him and participating in excavations and so forth, I became accustomed to the idea that people ate off the felt. And for somebody like me, that wasn't a usual, you know, most of the kids in our class, it wouldn't even have occurred to them such an idea. Then I went through this whole kind of studying architecture and landscape design and working with local indigenous foods and gradually came to see that actually I was using my expertise to make wealthy people's lives and gardens nicer. And I felt I felt that I wanted to do something more meaning, meaningful with the knowledge that I'd accumulated. And so the shift from working with local indigenous ornamental plants to working with local indigenous edible plants wasn't actually such a massive shift, particularly because in the beginning I started to work with many of the plants that people might already have in their gardens, but they don't have a clue that a num-num berry or a kaiapple fruit or a wild rosemary plant or an African sage plant you could actually use in cooking. My goodness, because you've got to be careful of poisonous things as well. That is indeed true. And so actually making sure that you know the plant that you're working with is extremely important because they are quite a lot. They are lookalikes. Mm-hmm. Um, that could poison you, in fact. Oof. That could indeed. Okay, I want to find out some more details and res- even recipes and things. But I see your first piece of music, Luby, is Derek Gripper, the guitarist, playing Bach, one of Bach's uh, adagios. And a few, what, is this something special to you? Well, one of my favorite classical composers is Bach. And I relatively recently, I mean, in the last sort of, I suppose, five or so years, discovered Derek Gripper, and I think he's an extraordinary musician. And I heard one of his 
before he'd actually re- recorded the CD, I heard one of his early renditions of a Bach piece, and I just loved it. <laughs> and so yeah. for me, it's sort of it's a combination between supporting a South African extraordinary musician and Bach. music by Bach, arranged and played by Derek Gripper, there, the guitarist. Derek Gripper is a South African. I think he's based here in Cape Town, isn't he? Yes, Luby? I think he is, yes. <laughs> Was the first choice of my guest on People of Note this week, Luby Rush, who is talking about indigenous food plants and losing me on the way. <laughs> you spoke about people may have lots of things in their gardens. I remember when I was young, you know, as a child, you always wanted to pick a berry and or something or a leaf and your parents would be quite worried mm. uh, are you saying that those things many of them can now be used in stews and cooking and recipes yes so the the kinds of things that you might find in your garden are not necessarily the ones which one might call a vegetable mm-hmm. which would be say like a vatablomiki or feldquill sunquill and those sorts of things um, because very often People think of those as weeds when they find them. So when they discover them, say you're in a coastal garden and you discover some of these things growing there, people get quite excited because they might otherwise think, oh, this is a nothing, I'll pull it out and throw it away. So it sort of draws attention to how incredibly food blind we've become Mm -hmm. and the way in which we think that food must be on a supermarket shelf in order to consider it a food. Whereas for millennia, people ate strictly off the landscape here. Mm -hmm. And the food that you're talking about, the indigenous food, is tasty? Oh, I mean, that's a bottom line (laughs) requisite. (laughs) I mean, if I'm going to be trying to encourage people to reintegrate these foods into the way in which they cook 
um, then picking the ones which are the most delicious possible is definitely a good idea. <laughs> Some of them can be bitter, um, and I've deliberately chosen to not start, start with the ones which might be a little bit more difficult. And I've also started with the ones which might, especially those being brought into cultivation, starting with the ones which would grow quite quickly. Um, for example? So, for example, dune spinach would be one of one of oh. them, ice plant, sunrose, which is a plant which grows in many people's gardens, which is really easy to to cultivate. So I would go with plants that are really fast so that if you're a small-scale grower and you're bringing them into cultivation and trying to find a client base, then you could bring them to market quite quickly rather than a tree which might, or a bigger shrub which might take several years before you could start harvesting. Yeah. I remember when I was told about you, I had visions of you uh, wanting us to eat leaves and branches and twigs, but it's not like that at all, is it? You're talking about food that is plants that are tasty. Absolutely. So the way that I divide the plants in my two books is that I talk about the leafy green pot herbs. And so those you might think of as the sort of maroch type plants that, that are still quite a, a strongly used indigenous uh, vegetable more in the summer rainfall areas than here. Mm -hmm. But And so referring to them as a pot herb basically means that it's a plant you would tend to want to cook. Then there are the succulent green leaves and ice plant and sun rose and sea pumpkin are the kinds of plants that fall into that category. And those very often you would use raw. Um, then there are the what I call the wild uh, vegetables and that would be a would fall into that category or some of the wild cucumbers that we have. Uh, Feldquill, sunquill, those sorts of plants. So sunquill looks like a long stem broccoli and uh, feldquill looks like an asparagus. So there's the sort of thing which you would look at and not be too terrified by what it appears to be because it's familiar somehow. Mm -hmm. And familiar is important. Absolutely, because, <laughs> like you know, you don't want to make it too hard for yes, people to engage yes, in these things. Yes. And now you mentioned books. You've written two books, haven't you? Yes. And I also mentioned just before the music about recipes. Mm. Are these books guides for people with recipes to get into this whole world of indigenous foods? Yes. So the first one that I wrote was called Cape Wild Foods uh, Grower's Guide. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that one I wrote specifically aimed at both gardeners as well as small scale growers. So to actually encourage people getting to know them, recognize them and give them information about how they might grow them, how far apart you might have to put them, the kinds of conditions that they like to grow in sunshine or um, oh, so how it's tall they grow. Very basic. So it's, it's a basic guide. It's a basic guide to with with useful information, the mm -hmm. kind of soil they might like, that kind of thing, where they would occur naturally. So in that book I, book, I do cover winter rainfall, but also a few summer rainfall ones, because those tend to be the ones that might already be in somebody's garden or might be available at the nursery. Mm -hmm. Then the second one is Cape Wild Foods uh, Cook's Guide. And in that one, I also describe the plants, but from a culinary perspective. So I give information about what the plant looks like, what it might taste like, which part of it you might cook with, because it's not like a recipe book where you're using a carrot and an onion and a potato and you don't really need to say very much about those because everybody knows them. <laughs> so there's a whole section which actually gives you some info with, about the is plant. Is it illustrated? Illustrated as well. And then there are a whole series of recipes as well. And 
the way that I approached the recipes was to decide not to kind of invent a whole new indigenous cuisine, but rather to use substitution as a principle. So put recipes in there that people might be familiar with, like falafels or hummus or a stew or a soup, those kinds of things. And just suggest that if you're using rosemary, you could substitute wild rosemary. Or if you want to make a sage butter, you could make it with an indigenous sage bush. That kind of thing to really make it as easy as possible for people to engage with ingredients that they're not familiar with. Mm, it's a passion, isn't it, for you, Absolutely. Lumi? <laughs> Total. You can hear it, can't you? I can hear it. <laughs> uh, we'll remind our listeners of those two books later on. But there's another piece of music coming now. Joni Mitchell, Big Yellow Taxi. What's that all about? So she was a musician that I first was hearing when I was studying in France, actually, as about an 18-year-old. And I made friends with a Canadian girl. And, sh- and Joni Mitchell was very popular then. And... This particular song I'm interested in because she's she was sort of hippie era, mm-hmm. um, Woodstock, that kind of, and really sort of resisting the way that things were going. And so this one was really talking about how parking lots were springing up and how we were actually destroying our environments and that kind of thing. And from, that's very dear to my heart because my reason for wanting to work with indigenous foods is really to actually reclaim foods and a knowledge system that we've lost touch with in in the way in which we've moved with agriculture and with erasing cultures and colonization and so it's kind of just really a sort of reclamation approach to the kind of destruction that she describes in this song a parking lot With a pink hotel A boutique And a swinging hot spot Don't it always seem to go That you don't know what you've got Till it's gone They pay paradise Put up a parking lot They took all the trees Put them in a tree museum Charge the people a dollar and a half just to see them. Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone? They pay paradise, put up a parking lot. Hey, farmer, farmer, put away the DDT now. Give me spots on my apples, or leave me the birds and the bees. That you don't know what you've got till it's gone. They pay paradise, put up a parking lot. Late last night, I heard the screen door slam. And a big yellow taxi took away my old man. Don't it always seem to go? That you don't know what you've got till it's gone. You pay paradise, put up a parking lot. I said, don't it always seem to go? That you don't know what you've got till it's gone. They pay paradise, put up a parking lot. They pay paradise, put up a parking lot. They pay paradise, 
That's Joni Mitchell, and the song was called Big Yellow Taxi, beautifully introduced by my guest, Luby Rush, who's with me in the studio today. And we're talking about exploring indigenous foods and discovered the two books you wrote. But while the music was playing, you were just saying, Luby, that the Cape is very interesting as a biodiversity area. Is that right? Yes. Can you make more sense of that than <clears throat> I've just done? So the Cape Floristic Region, or also known as the Greater Cape Floristic Region, is the area which is sort of at the bottom left of South Africa, down in the sort of Cape, yeah, right, Cape Point and sort of oh, yes, yes, yes. edging along the sort of south coast and the then up the west Cape. coast, yeah, yes, yeah, Western yeah. Cape. And it's a winter rainfall area. It's the smallest and most biodiverse hotspot on our planet. On our planet? On our planet. So we've got seven, seven biodiversity hotspots on the planet, and the Cape Floristic Region is the smallest one. Mm-hmm. So it's incredibly biodiverse, 10,000 or so plant species, um, highest level of endemism of all the other hotspots. In other words, the kinds of plants that only grow in specific little places is the highest here to anywhere in, else in the world. So there's a oh, kind gosh, of a, incredible richness plant-life richness that is down here. And of those 10,000 or so species, 25% are under threat. So about 2,500 plants are threatened. And they're threatened by habitat loss. Now that habitat loss is happening because of the way we do agriculture and also because of urbanization. So we're building. So, for example, one of the places where there's huge habitat loss on the Cape Flats, which is the Cape Flats uh, dune strandfelt, is urbanization. Whereas in the Renostafelt biomes of the Cape Floristic region, that those are the soils which are quite rich. Most Feinbos soils are very, very poor and so not really particularly suitable for agriculture. But the Renostafelt soils are quite rich, quite arable. And so that is where our vineyards, our wheat fields, our um, yeah. orchards and so forth have been planted, resulting in, I think there's only about 4% of Renostafelt left in the wild. Wow. So quite radical. Pretty radical, radical yes. destruction of this biodiversity hotspot mm-hmm. um, by the way in which uh, since colonization we've actually shifted our cultural habits, the way that we um, access food. So before the colonists arrived, people were eating from the felt sustainably for millennia. And the colonists arrived with their foods and their way of agriculture and there's been a sort of complete transposition to a totally different way. Of, of eating over the last five or so centuries. And so my work, I'm hardly giving you a gap to ask <laughs> no, a question. Please, you fascinate me. Carry on. So my work really <laughs> is how can we repair this past through food? Mm-hmm. Food is, is a love of mine, which you know I switched from designing gardens into working with food. And I, as the years went by, I realized actually that we all eat. And even though there's been significant cultural loss in terms of food habits and so forth, um, and also just in general, traditional knowledge loss, that food is a way, you know, we're breaking bread together. Mm, It's something that it can really bring people together. And we need it. Absolutely. It's sustained to sustain us. We need it. And also that there's incredible reparation of destroyed landscapes that can happen by using food plants that are... Um, 
really well adjusted to local poor soil conditions or rainfall aridity, that kind of thing. So there's here we have massive potential in a climate variability world mm-hmm. of drawing on an un, of a forgotten series of plants, about 1,700 or so edible plants that we don't make use of at all. So we've got hope to improve things here in the Western Cape, which a lot of other places on the planet don't have. And that's what you're trying to spearhead with your various yes, projects and yes, books and organizations. Definitely one. So, the, yeah, I mean, climate variability, but then also social restitution. Mm-hmm. So where there's been such significant marginalization of culture, of livelihoods and so forth, really working with people to revive the use of and reintegrate these forgotten foods back into lives. May I ask you, you, we, you talked about when the colonials came along, here and prior to that for millennia people were eating off the land Mm. is it possible that today in today's day and age poor rural folk are in fact still eating off the land Mm. these indigenous foods or not to some extent yes Uh, there was one of the things that did happen in those colonial years was very much uh, kind of shame got attached to wild foods and to traditional practices. Oh, that's interesting. So yeah. for very many people, indigenous foods, wild foods are seen as poverty foods. So sometimes, like sometimes with breastfeeding as well, mothers mothers don't want to not breastfeed because there might be, con- you know, there's stigma attached. Mm-hmm. So there is quite a bit of stigmatization, but certainly more so in rural areas than in urban areas, there is still some use of indigenous edibles and significant use of indigenous medicinals. Now, from a public awareness point of view, like you spoke about this uh, biodiversity area on the West Coast and all that, um, what sort of knowledge do you feel that there is from the public, generally speaking, about these areas and about indigenous food? Or do we all have to be educated by someone like you? Hmm. In in rural communities, there is still some knowledge, and sometimes when you speak to people, that knowledge is dormant. It's it's kind of waiting to be called up again, and I've mm-hmm. been working in, in the Cedarburg on a research project for about six years or so, and in the time that we've worked there, there's been a kind of um, somehow digging back into brains and remembering what grandfathers and great-grandmothers and so forth might have told you. Um, when you were growing up or what you might have eaten that has just completely been forgotten because mm-hmm. nowadays people go to the supermarket. Yes. Um, <laughs> you, say, you say that disparagingly. I'm afraid I'm one of those. Well, most of us well, are. Well, we are. Yeah. Food somehow appears in the mm. supermarket. But it's also a reflection of the extent to which we've completely become disconnected from the place where we are. The so land. If, yes. You know, if you're a foraging person and you're getting your food by going into the felt, there's an incredible intimacy with a plant and how it behaves and how it can support you. Mm. Whereas if you go to the supermarket, there's a total loss of understanding. So of, wrapped in plastic. Yeah, you know, and what what kind of conditions that does, does that plant like? Where are you likely to find it? And when when is it good to pick it? You know, th- those are some of the things that I'm also trying to bring through my boxes to mm-hmm. really help with this strong movement that we're beginning to find internationally that people want to reconnect with their food and with place. I think also uh, this might be a shot in the dark that the um, pandemic has got us to slow down and to think about the earth and where we come from and what Mm. things can happen to us. Mm. Am I making sense by saying that? I do think so, yes. I think certainly that 
even accelerated a sort of direction that was beginning a little bit before then already. Mm-hmm. I don't know to what extent you're aware of the sort of foraging craze. No, I'm not aware. So quite often quite hip. Uh-huh. It's very strong international trend where people want to know what they can find if they go walking in the forest or along the coastline or something. To eat, and find to, to eat, eat. Find to eat or to use to as a medicine plant. Um, or to make soap with, you know, it's just how uh, wanting to reconnect with the environment, how you make dye, you know, all sorts of different angles that people are approaching, getting to know Mm. where they are. Gosh, that's interesting. Um, Luby, let's have another piece of music. Otherwise, I'm going to feel bombarded (laughs) with thoughts and ideas. Abdullah Ibrahim, we all know him now. Why have you chosen him? I've chosen him because, again, he's one of our South African legends. He's a real icon. And the African Marketplace album, for me, it just, it has such a, especially the cut that I've chosen, has such a flavor of the cape. And it just, you know, if I was overseas for a while, I would listen to that and I would just immediately be transported back to here and the sort of cultural mix of people that we have and Malay food and flavors and curry smells and, mm. you know, sort of, yeah, it's, that's why I've chosen that piece.
Abdullah Ibrahim. What was that piece called? Wazami. Wazami. That was Wazam Twana, I Wazam think is how Twana. you say it. Okay. Yes. Another choice of my guest on People of Note here on Fine Music Radio this week, Luby Rush, talking about indigenous foods. One, the one question I want to ask you is, how do you educate people? How do you educate them into wanting to eat this food mm. and add it to their recipes and add it to their meals? How do you go about that? Because it must mm. be fairly difficult. And where do you find this food? Because theoretically, it's there already, isn't it, or should be? Mm. We don't go and buy a little bottle of seeds and plant it. Yeah, well, that's that's right. These plants are so forgotten that mm-hmm. other than the ones which are in people's gardens that you can buy at your local nursery, <clears throat> the other ones which are more sort of crop-like mm-hmm. are really just not available. Um, and I started as making course bottling things that I could forage, you know, like num num berries and kayapas. Making course, and that's, making a, course, that's a, yes. a your, like a trade name thing, isn't that it? That was my sort of brand when I first started by mucking mm-hmm. about in my kitchen in pots, just figuring out what could I actually do with <laughs> some of these indigenous foods. Goodness and I me. sold a bit at market and that uh-huh. kind of thing. Um, but then soon realized that actually if if this was going to be brought to scale and we were really going to repair the past through food, then bringing them into some kind of short supply chain was something that needed to happen. And so I started a little initiative called Local Wild and I brought growers and cooks together into the same room because I felt that if we're going to be sustainably accessing these things, we need to cultivate them. And I had had a I had a garden in Kailicha called the Cape Wild Food. Um, can't remember its name now, but anyway, I was cultivating some indigenous crops mm-hmm. in Kailicha on an urban farm, and the farmers were interested. So I thought, okay, fine, let me get more farmers actually seriously beginning to grow these. But then they can't grow them without a market. Or without an end customer. And we need to actually, if this is going to be something that I'm going to be innovating into existence, so to speak, rather than waiting for it to be market driven as something which grows, then I need to bring people into the same room together. And also researchers, because there are lots of research gaps related to these foods. And so in about 2017, I ran this project for several months. And what emerged out of that was that both the growers and the cooks and chefs actually just didn't have a clue about anything, where to get cuttings or seeds or what recipes to use. And I realized, okay, there's a knowledge gap here. And that's that eventually led to me writing my two books. Okay. So um, the main thing is you got chefs and growers together, you mm. said. Was there much resistance or were they excited, enthusiastic? Did they think you mm. were mad? Well, I had been developing quite a network, so I chose people I thought would be most likely to be very excited by this. Mm -hmm. And so there actually wasn't resistance. There was great delight and interest. But what I did make a point of trying to figure out is what are the needs of the growers and what are the needs of the chefs? So discovering that on-time delivery of good quality food is really important for a chef. So that sort of logistics of the supply chain was Mm -hmm. really important to pay attention to. And for the growers, where they could access and where they could get information about these things that they don't know about, and even how you eat them, for that matter, was important to them. And none of this, you know, it was all in my head. I'd been doing all this work all these years, but it wasn't easily accessible to people. Mm. So I realized, okay, these these are some of these gaps that I need to address address before we can really start actually building the supply chain. 
And so now we, we're in a closer position. I mean, it's been pretty stop-start because for a while we did have um, the Philippi AgriHub, uh, the Petty AgriHub, helping us to connect growers who had then started growing with chefs who were interested. But they then closed their doors. And so now there's a sort of take two in how to develop these short supply chains. Mm-hmm. So, And that's really important to do that because... One of the reasons it took me a while to write the book was I found, why would I write a book if you can't actually get the ingredient that I'm asking you to work with? So actually getting them into the ground and getting them into markets and um, into people's homes is, is part of it. It sounds like quite a project. It Lugie. is quite a project. I mean, you must have been Crazy. a busy, busy lady. <laughs> do you have people to help you? Do you have staff or do you have assistants or it's now it's now getting to the point where yes there is that kind of support because we've now established the local wild food hub as a special project at the sustainability institute and we have a funder and so now there are interns and um, I've got an assistant oh. and we've got a farmer training program that we've got funded. And so, you know, all, it's all becoming much more formalized and on the map and people begin to take it more seriously and the momentum grows. And so it's yes, it's great. It's 15 but, years later, it's sort of <laughs> setting, setting really solid. Roots. And is it only in Cape Town or, or do you have interest from elsewhere in the country? So there's quite a lot of interest in indigenous ingredients in the rest of the country, but those are very much the summer rainfall foods mm-hmm. where there actually was a tradition of cultivation. So the sorghums and millets and uh, baobab and those sorts of things are much more already in the food system than they are here. Whereas here, there's even just bringing them into cultivation is an innovation space because they were previously wild harvested. Mm-hmm. So all of these things are in a way we're having to create this as we go. You know, we're sort of building our aeroplane as we fly it, so <laughs> to speak. It's rather dangerous. <laughs> and we're going to have another track of music. Chick Corea, I see, lurking in the wings here. Mm. Tell me about this children's songs. They're a series, I think, of about 20 short piano pieces that he composed that just really appeared to me in their sort of lighthearted kind of contemporary jazz field. And I think I really got to like them when our children were little. And the sort of playful, their playful nature just appeals to me.
That was Chick Corea, a couple of his children's songs there, and also another choice of my guest on People of Note this week, Luby Rush, talking about this extraordinary business of exploring indigenous foods. You've written two books, which we must remind them about. But um, one of the things I was thinking when you were talking about everything you're doing, uh, if it becomes trendy, this business of indigenous foods, do you think restaurants will ever go that route? Would you be able to go to a, re- a posh restaurant, say, and say, see a menu that includes indigenous foods? Yes, it's already beginning. So Wolfhart Restaurant in Paternoster uses a lot of indigenous ingredients and he's been top 50 in the world. So it's Mm -hmm. already, you know, the top end restaurants are definitely beginning to embrace, you know, others as well. So there's there's a guy who's actually taking in indigenous ingredients, the few that at the moment are available to restaurants to integrate into their uh, menus. So that definitely is already beginning. It's a little bit more difficult for individual household people to access them. It will improve. So there's a, a, a veggie box scheme through Harvest of Hope who are including a few indigenous ingredients. And as their farmers start to grow more, then they will become more easily accessible to to home cooks. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, the, the supply chain is going to have to, it's going to have to be sort of customer and farmer getting an understanding of what are what are the volumes that are needed? Yes. It's, it's a it's yes. a journey. What is the international situation? Um, is this purely an African thing, South Africa, or you mentioned that foraging has mm. become sort of a trendy thing internationally? Mm. Are indigenous foods interesting for people overseas? So there are a couple of different ways in which people are hooking into food from landscapes. The one is foraging, mm-hmm. and that tends to be a more sort of middle class in a way activity. Mm-hmm. People who can afford to buy a book or learn from somebody who takes you foraging, that kind of thing. But then there's also a very strong um, reclaiming of identity through indigenous peoples. So you'll find in um, in Australia that there's a huge... A revival of indigenous ingredients of the Aboriginal people that's happening, oh, or gosh. in Canada or in America, mm-hmm. you know, that they are actually people who've been disconnected from their traditions who are reclaiming them and rebuilding their knowledge systems. So that's also, the, yes, you know, it's, it's, and also there's an understanding that these knowledge systems have a lot to offer us in a climate variable world because there's a kind of a real deep connection with how these plants grow and how for many millennia they were sustainable and that they are wild species that would we could be drawing on to improve um, you know drought resistance of plants in a way in which our current agriculture system is so focused on monoculture yeah. and technology that they're missing that completely. Two things I want to ask you quickly before we have to wrap up. The um, Institute, what was it called? The Yes, the Sustainability, Sustainability Institute. Institute. Yes. Is that a place that people can visit? Would it be of interest to people? 
Yes, you know, I was doing wild food walks there for a while and and in due course I will pick them up again. We've got a learning garden there. We do farmer training there. They've got a hospitality division so you can go to the Green Cafe and get a plate of indigenous ingredient foods. They use indigenous ingredients in their feeding schemes, in their preschool and primary school feeding. So it's a very interesting place where in quite an integrated way Mm -hmm. we're beginning to work with indigenous ingredients. Where where actually is it? They're in Lyndock, quite close to to Spear. Um, And the other initiative that we have with the Sustainability Institute is a community of practice, which Uh is a multi-stakeholder initiative where we're bringing a whole range of traditional knowledge holders, farmers, cooks, chefs, researchers, uh, non-profit organizations, government bodies, um, conservation uh, bodies together to, as we work to reintegrate these foods back into our food system, that we're doing it by making sure everybody's got a seat at the table and that we're doing it in an informed way and that we're influencing policy as we do it. So it really is trying to be responsible in bringing back into use our unbelievably rich diversity of indigenous foods. You must be immensely proud of what you've done. As you said, you would never have thought this 15 years ago. Just two things now. Your books, just remind me of the names of your books. Yes, so it's Cape Wild Foods, A Grower's Guide and Cape Wild Foods, A Cook's Guide, both published with me by the Sustainability Institute. You can order them through them, but you can also find them at Kirstenbosch Bookshop, at Happy by Nature, at a vari- variety of okay. different bookshops around And now, the very important, you're, if people want to find out more about you and what you do, have you got a website address? So there is the website's being rebuilt, so I'm not sure I really want to be guiding you to the local wild website, but you can <laughs> certainly um, you can certainly find me as Luby Rush on Facebook and Instagram, and also you can follow the Sustainability Institute on their website. Okay, Luby, it's been fascinating talking to you. Um, now your last piece of music is with Miriam Makeba. Yes, so this piece to me. And I don't even know if I can possibly pronounce it, but this is a, a, an, al- an album that she dedicated to her mother, who was a Sangoma. And so this kind of reclaiming, this healing of our land, mm-hmm. for me, that's the, the way in which her music calls, in a way, is like a calling to lost things. So that's why it appeals to me, that actually this this trajectory of... Yeah, repairing the past through food, mm-hmm. ending with a healing song is well, is really important. Congratulations to you for what you're doing. Luby Rush was my guest, and we leave you now with Miriam Makeba. Luby, thank you. Thank you very much for having me.
And everybody starts to move as soon as Pata Pata starts to play. People of Note on Fine Music Radio was proudly brought to you by Peter Turin Productions.